Look at him. His son reduced to ashes, and there he is, dancing like he doesn't have a care in the world. Hello, Dexter Morgan fans, and welcome to the Dexter New Blood Wrap-Up Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Reynolds, writer and producer of the Showtime original series, Dexter, and now the new Showtime special event series, Dexter New Blood. First things first. For those Dexter New Blood Wrap-Up listeners who don't have Showtime yet, uh, visit show.com forward slash Dexter pod for a special limited time offer. You get to try Showtime free for 30 days, then just pay $8.99 a month for 12 months. This offers for new customers only and expires January 3rd, 2022. So uh, get on it. You don't want to miss where this is going. Joining me today to break down Runaway, episode five of Dexter New Blood, is the episode's amazing, awesome writer, I'm a big fan, Veronica West. Uh, and later we're going to talk to composer Pat Irwin and music supervisor Michael Hill and discuss all the music elements. So let's get into it. Veronica West, hey. Scott Reynolds, so good to see you. Yeah, Slash see you hear too. you after yeah, for- about a year since we did the writer's room, yeah? Crazy, right? Yeah. Um, let's talk about uh, your journey to becoming a writer. Uh, okay. Because, uh, like, how did you, what made you want to do this? How did you, how did, how did it happen? Get, come yeah. on, let's go. Okay, let's go. Um, I don't know. I feel, <laughs> I hear a lot of people like, oh, they wondered what they wanted to do when they finally found their calling. And like, I think I have the opposite story. I just always wanted to write television since I was like six years old. So single-minded on that track, um, I went to Northwestern with Lauren Gussis, another right. famous Dexter alum, sorority sister with Lauren Gussis. That is a fact for your fans. When I heard there. that, I it all made sense. <laughs> So I went to Northwestern for television writing and became a television writer. So it's kind of a boring story, but um, yeah. Like what was the TV shows? What was the things that made you be like, that's, A, how did you know that's what you wanted to do? Because it takes a, it took a, I mean, I'm, I'm much older than you, but it takes a bit to, uh, (laughs) uh, we didn't have the same sort of setup that uh, people do nowadays where, there's tons of behind the scenes stuff. There's tons of interviews with writers. There's podcasts yeah. about it. Like when we grew up, we just watched a television show and there was nothing, totally. especially for TV. Yeah. And same here. Like there wasn't a lot of access to that stuff. I think I really credit my parents for like taking it seriously. My dad um, had dreams of being a TV writer and he went to NYU and studied it. And um, kind of when I first brought it up, it was like, sure, that's a legitimate career path and you can absolutely do that, which I think I was really lucky to have that support from oh, yeah. the start. Um, probably the first thing that was super inspiring, like Friends was coming on when I was in high school and that yeah. was just like so relatable and everybody loved Friends and I sat down with like a desktop computer and wrote my own friend spec in high school, <laughs> like a giant nerd. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, did you know that, Scott? <laughs> No, that's amazing. <laughs> I know. So I was like, okay, I get it. They they say the dialogue and uh, you write the story. So started young, kept at it. Um, and I, I'm super lucky to have known that, I think, because I came to Hollywood. I graduated when I was 20, came to Hollywood, started working as an assistant, and I just have been writing pilots and spec episodes ever since. And it gave me the opportunity to sort of get staffed as a little bit of a younger writer. I think I was like 26 when I started on Ugly Betty um, in comedy. Oh, wow, and 
it, it, I have been lucky enough to have like a long career, even though, as I stated, quite young, very young as a person. <laughs> <laughs> Not that young, but got lucky to have worked in a lot of different mediums and seen how like television has changed so much since I started. Like there was not, there there was Showtime, there was HBO, and that was kind of it besides the broadcast networks, you know? Yep. So we all looked up to shows like Dexter, like maybe someday I'll, I'll be good enough to write on a show like that. So mission accomplished. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. Um, so let's talk about this episode. Um, yeah. A, it was uh, awesome working with you in the room. You're so freaking good and smart and funny, surprising pitches, always grounded in character and emotion. Um, and so in this nice. episode, you threw out some like really freaking great pitches that just, that, that, that stuck forever and ever. Um, and like uh -oh. gritty stuff, not like a friend's writer. You know, right. Like yeah, definitely changed, uh, <laughs> gotten a little bit darker as I've aged. Although, yeah, I've always had a little bit of a dark side, but now it's fun to kind of let it shine. And this was yeah. one of the darker things I've ever written, and it really unleashed like a whole new side to, to my career and uh, my upcoming work as well. So I was grateful for that. No, it's great. Um, let's talk about Deb and Dex discussing, about, discussing Harrison at the top of this episode. Um, yeah. You were given a, you know, uh, you know when we broke that when we broke it, we were just like, yeah, Deb's got a point of view of Harrison. Dexter's got a point of view of Harrison. Why don't you go write that? Right. <laughs> no, I mean, I think it's such an interesting area, and I just got to watch the episode, which was so fun, um, and just see what how you guys brought it to life, which I'm really grateful for. Just like how much you brought to it, and I thought it was excellent. Um, hey. But. Yeah, thank you, Scott. Um, but I was excited to see just how Dexter and Harris, I mean, Dexter and Deb could talk about Harrison growing up and in a weird way have Dexter just be talking about himself, you know, like asking all the questions out loud about Harrison, like, what does it mean if he has this in him? Does that make him a good person or a bad person? Can it be harnessed to do something good? I mean, these are the questions that Dexter's been grappling with the entire series and the questions that the audience has been asking about Dexter. So now that we can yeah. like manifest them in drama and have our two favorite characters, Deb and Dexter, actually debating, you know, what it means, um, that was a really special opportunity, I felt like. And and that's really hopefully, I think, setting up where the rest of the season is going in a lot of ways, those questions um about yeah. Dexter's relationship with his son and like getting to to start that arc in a lot of ways was was really cool. All over a, just a straight razor. <laughs> yeah, just just a yeah. little straight razor. Just a little straight razor that you find in your son's flashlight. Um yeah. I I loved I loved uh on the page the way that you um the way that Deb was screaming at Dexter, just angry, and then that quick switch when Dexter turns and then Deb comes up behind him and is just appears and is hugging him. And it's and it's really showing those you can't trust Deb. <laughs> Yeah. In a lot of ways, well, you know. She's a manifestation of of Dexter's own subconscious, you know, and and she does reflect in this part of the series, you know, she does reflect her own opinions and what what Dexter remembers her opinions to be, but she's also speaking Dexter's inner truth in a lot of ways too. And sometimes like we all 
have dissonant kind of opinions about ourselves. And that's why Deb can be that way too, like disagree with herself or, you know, be comforting to Dexter in one moment and attacking him in another moment because we're all sort of doing that to ourselves all the time, you know, and we get to dramatize that through Jennifer, who did such an amazing job. It's been such a pleasure to watch her bring Deb to life in kind of a twisted, tilted, different way than she ever was before. Yeah, she's a, as she puts it, she's an agent of chaos in Dexter's totally. life, you know, um, uh, which was super, yeah, it's, it was, it was, it was a fun day on set watching her sort of figure that all out and, um, and just getting to that warmth of that hug. It gets me every time that, uh, that hug where she's just like, I oh, know, and that's what Dexter needed in that moment. <laughs> he needs her to yeah. be like, just stop with that. And we, we wish we could just make our significant others like just, can you just be nice now? Is that? <laughs> right, right. I love the way you guys gift. brought it to life and like reminding the audience that Deb was in his head in those like cutting to those wide shots where Deb isn't there, you know, at the end of a conversation and stuff. I thought that was a really elegant way to dramatize and remind us that he's not nuts. Like she's not there all the time. He's not gone crazy. It's just like. He's not talking to himself. Right. That's yeah. his internal dialogue, you know, and we all have that yeah. in moments of crisis. Um, and Dexter, unfortunately, has quite a few moments of crisis <laughs> in this <laughs> Such season. Such is his life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was Marco Siega. Like from the very beginning, he wanted to, he, we would shoot a scene with Deb. And then we'd shoot the scene, same scene all over again and have Deb off camera saying all the dialogue and just have Dexter standing there. Uh, sometimes he would say it. Sometimes he would think it. Sometimes he would say it. So we would have all these different options. Uh, that was the, you so know, such a brilliant way to, to do it, that, that what Marcos did. Yeah, um, that's really he was cool. Always ready. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah he's, he's it, but ready. you can tell that because he reacts to her in different ways. You know, sometimes he's reacting as though she's there, and sometimes you know that he knows he's talking to himself. So now, now I understand why. What a great insight, Scott. As <laughs> Marcos, um, leading to uh, Dexter and Harrison. Yeah. Um, when we were breaking the story, we really wanted to feel that struggle with Dexter. Uh, uh, you know, that he wants to share everything. I mean, that is. Yeah. From the very beginning, when we were just sat in the room talking through Dexter, we talked about how Dexter just, you know, he's like us in a lot of ways that he wants to, he wants to be known. He wants to be understood. He wants to belong, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and one of the things that Michael had shared uh, on set, you know, when he was just talking, when we were talking these things through, is that he sort of looks at his life, his, he looks at Harrison almost like it's a mirror, which we do as parents, you know, like my dad mm -hmm. wanted me to be a golfer. I showed him. Um, <laughs> your dad wanted you to be a writer. You showed him, like it all. Shit. You know, it, uh, <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> no, yeah, it's, no, it's 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 true and it's real. You know, it's just and when you're a when you're a sociopath like like Dexter is, it's a little bit more intense. Yeah, um, that mirror. Yeah. Um, well, he talks but, about uh, that in the beginning, right? Like he talks about feeling alone in the world. If anyone knew who he really was, they would yeah. drown him, you know, they would kill him. And like, yep. that was the goal to set up that story of like this conflict of Dexter not wanting Harrison to suffer through life in, in a lot of ways Dexter has suffered. He's found love and he's found enjoyment, but he's a tortured soul, right? You never want that for your kids, even though you know yeah. it could, they could be a lot like you or they couldn't, you know? So he does want Harrison to be like him in this way of like, 
we could connect finally, you know, yeah. and he's framing it in this episode as it's not selfish. It's I could be there for him, you know, but I think what it right. really means is Harrison could be there for Dexter, you know, and dad yeah. calls him out on that immediately. So, but yeah. they're all understandable human feelings, you know, even though we're not serial killers, I think you and me as parents, you know, I don't think we're serial yeah. killers. I'm not, no. but if, yeah. as parents, we That's what you see would say. it. Good point. Um, We see our children and we just, we want better for them than we had, you know, but uh, Dexter's torn, so. Dexter's very torn. And and, uh, how how are you enjoying uh, young Jack Alcott as Harrison? Oh my God, he's fantastic. You know, it was so hard to think we could ever get everything we needed out of an actor to play Harrison. You know, there's a vulnerability and and I loved how, you know, this was something I talked about in the room a lot, like never forgetting like the truth of the fact that he's been abandoned for 10 years. Like we have all these yeah. other layers of the story going on, of course, that with everything else going on, but Harrison also was, you know, abandoned by Dexter in a lot of ways. He found that letter. You know, we really wanted those things to land and that he was in foster care, that he didn't have anyone to trust. You know, I think you guys really landed those moments in the early episodes when Dexter brings him the coat and all of those things where we just like remind ourselves of the truth of um, that relationship between the two of them before the rest of the complications rear their heads. Uh, One of the moments I, another moment I really loved in in it, in the episode was when, um, is those moments where Dexter, where we see a very human side of Dexter, because Dexter normally is, he is so controlled. He's, um, he doesn't allow emotion to take him over in any way. Mm-hmm. But that very human parenting moment when Dexter slashed the couch, you know, yeah. when Harrison, you know, slams the door and then, you know, ditches his dad. And he finally, when we see this like very human reaction of like slashing the couch and in the yeah. script, it was supposed to be, um, a lampshade. Oh yeah. Uh, but because we're in this big open cabin, uh, we, and the and the lamp was just sitting in the middle of the room, because um, right. you know he he slashes it and then just sort of like hides it, which is very Dexter. You know, got to present mm-hmm. as everything's fine, even if everything's shredded and torn up underneath. Right. Uh, yeah. But but it was funny on the day. I was like, well, how do we turn the lamp so we can hide it? And like, well, just turn it like this. Yeah. But then everyone can see it. And he's like, oh yeah. Right. <laughs> no, it worked we, perfectly that yeah. way. I thought it was really cool. Um, which, you know, uh, parenting is hard, especially when you're a serial killer. Uh, <laughs> and Harrison uh, gets invited to the kill list party. Um, and I think the kill list party, I think this whole sort of sequence was you. If I remember in the room, yes. you, you, I mean, and it just got darker and better. And it was, uh, you want to talk about that? Like, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it felt like a real kind of truthful high school moment. Like he's had a fight with his dad, you know, his dad doesn't understand him. He wants to believe the worst about him and he goes to just rebel and party. And what was cool about breaking this season, I think was to get to explore kind of like what it's like growing up in this day and age, you know, to the, to the being much different than when Dexter grew up and seeing those flashbacks of him with Harry and all of that stuff. And like, um, the darkness that is sort of inherent in the, um, adolescent experience right now. And I think Clyde had the great pitch about climate change and just like knowing these these teenagers these days sort of feeling like the planet has a death sentence and that's what they've inherited, yep. you know? And like being jaded about 
killing and violence through the murder podcasts and like what Molly um, brings to the episode as well. So I think all of that builds up and you have to do it justice in the party scene. It can't just be like red solo cups and beer and like dirty right. dancing, you know, that that's sort of past. Um, so we had our euphoria moment, I guess. And Harrison was just kind of <laughs> rolling with it and things get dark. And what I loved about it is that it got to somewhere really vulnerable and it got to this confession that he makes to Audrey, um, which yep. is, as you see at the end of the episode, starts to be like a catalyst for his uh, Dexter story unraveling. It's unraveling, yeah. It's it's uh, it's hard to be a parent and a serial killer. We keep learning that again and again. This yeah, episode. hard to be either, but both, wow. <laughs> both is just impossible. Yeah. Um, how'd you feel seeing the party, seeing the drugged up sequence, the music, the, the little yeah. your expectations? Was it... Definitely. I thought, you know, you guys kept it really personal and individual and like his POV of it, you know, like it wasn't, it was always about what it was making him feel and his kind of de-evolution to uh, having to confront what he's really running from. You know, when you do party and take it a step too far, I think it's because you don't want to acknowledge something that's going on that's really bothering you. And from the minute Harrison found that letter, from the minute Harrison showed up in Iron Lake and Dexter said he wasn't his dad, you know, like that's the core issue going on. Like, who is his dad really? Is his dad a good person or a bad person? Does he love him or not? Can he trust him or not? And that's what he ends up... Um, revealing once he, his inhibitions are dropped. Yeah, no, it was it was uh, it was a fun it was a fun day in this big lodge up in the you know the Berkshires or something. Yeah, um, I just love that you know Harrison walks in the room and uh, and they all think he's a hero. Mm-hmm. You know, after after his dad. Um, yeah, it yeah. was uh, it was fun. The music was fun. We played you know real music bouncing around inside that house. For sure. Um, and then we get to uh, the cutting. That was yeah. you too. I remember you, you pitched that in the room. We're like, oh my God, that's perfect. <laughs> How'd that happen? Come on. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's hard. It's been like a year, but like watching it, I was like, oh, this is dark. Sometimes I forget what I wrote and then I'm surprised by it. So thank you for reminding me um, that that was my idea. But I think when you're doing those party sequences, like, it has to be specific. You know, you can't just say, oh, it's sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Like, everybody's seen that before, you know? So I always came at this through the lens of, like, Harrison's experience and what would be troubling to him, you know? So that sort of, like, branding moment, which people do do, like, how would that affect him? And I love that the girls freaked out as soon as it happens. Like, they're fucked up and think that this is, like, a cool thing to happen. But I think it's also pretty honest and true. (laughs) Yeah, like, why did I just ask this guy to cut me? Um, Yeah, so it gets a little nuts. Yeah, and that's, like, this sort of weird trigger of of Harrison. It's no longer super fun because it was very important for Showtime at the top of the the party up to that point that, that it looks like Harrison's finally having a good time, that Harrison's smiling and bouncing along and he's it's accepting yeah. of the adulation that he's receiving. Yeah. And then that thing that's in the back of his head is there, that uh, that question that 
that we've seen Dexter question about him wanting to slice people open or whatever. Right. Um, and it's cool to finally um, really get inside Harrison's head. You know, like he's yeah. more of a mystery. We have voiceover with Dexter. We know what he's thinking, literally, you know. And with Harrison uh, becoming a bigger and bigger part of the show, we don't have that access to his inner thoughts. So this was maybe the longest time we spent with him alone so far in yes. the series, you know. We, so, I, mean, I remember in in the script, you were you were actually sort of worried. You were like, we're not with Dexter for like six yeah. pages right now. Um, yeah. And then we were just like, no, this is the story we're telling. This is this is a some you know it's about Dexter, but this is Dexter too. Yeah. Everything that's happening is about Dexter, you know. For um, sure. And by this point in the season, I'm so invested in in Harrison and what's going to happen, just as an audience member and a viewer. So um, I was excited to yeah. get to see Jack perform that. And so as Harrison is off self medicating, uh, yeah. uh, Dexter is self medicating. Which is again, it's like Dexter at his most human in a lot of ways. Right. Uh, Dexter hanging at the bar with Tess. He's not going there to like hunt anybody. He's not going undercover to figure things out. He's going there because he is genuinely at a point in his, in his parenting life where he doesn't know what to do. And where do you go? Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting to see him deal with a teenager. Like, I think you and I had a lot of interesting conversations in the room because my kids are still so young and you have teenagers, adult children, and, yep. like, trying yep. to imagine my little baby someday going to a party is, is pretty difficult, you know? So for <laughs> Dexter to have missed those 10 years in the middle um, and now be launched into being the parent of a teenager is is complicated, and I don't it's think... overwhelming. Yeah, Absolutely. So that that moment was supposed to show just like his humanity and how it could be difficult for anybody. Yep, and then Tess, just wonderful. Tess, the teacher. Tess, the bartender. She's great. Uh, gives a little bit of advice, which Dexter at first doesn't seem to want. That's not why he came here. He just came for his Jameson, uh, <laughs> and instead, he he seems to sort of accept it. And then on set, one of my favorite moments of the whole season was in this was in this bar is when. Um, was when Kurt comes walking in and he's like, hey guys, why is everybody, let's have a party, you know? Yeah. And he puts in that song Runaway and he does yeah. that dance and Dexter's reaction to it, but just the way that Clancy Brown just gave himself to that moment. Um, mm -hmm. Were you pleased when you saw that? Like, uh, Absolutely. I mean, we have, uh, I feel like that was one of the moments sometimes in a writer's room, you have an idea and you don't know where it goes. Like, you know your characters and you know there's like, a poetic kind of vision that we had communally of like, wouldn't it be great if he just put that song, which the audience, it's a secret with the audience in that character. You know, Dexter yeah. doesn't know what it means. Tess doesn't know what it means. And that's always really special to to come up with those kind of moments that just the audience could share. So I don't think we knew exactly where it could go in the season and when we found this place for it in this episode, like right after now we understand his um, MO, what his pattern yeah. is, what his ritual is, and we know that he's sort of at the high, one of the highest peaks of knowing he has a victim locked up, you know, and seeing how that makes him feel is actually terrifyingly creepy, you know, and I think uh, Clancy brought all of that and more. <laughs> and 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 also just like super fun like when he when he looks over at uh, Tess she's like three two one and he yeah. does that little wave that little come on and she's like oh me <laughs> just <laughs> cracked me up totally uh, um, and I just love Dexter's reaction to it all because he's like this guy lost his son doesn't know what happened to him and here he is dancing and partying yeah and I'm sitting at a bar drinking worried about my son not knowing how I'm going to connect at all um, yeah. 
And those parallels between both of them as fathers, you know, and how they they treat that so differently. But then later in the episode, seeing Kurt have that super fatherly moment and connect with Harrison in a way that Dexter hasn't been able to, you know, so. Uh, Let's talk about the song Runaway. Um, Yeah. It's kind of the, it ended up being kind of the perfect song because it it means so much more because you have, you know, Harrison who ran away. You've got Dexter who ran away from his son. Yeah. Uh, and we'll reveal more about Runaway later that, the, yeah. the, that people don't know about, the secret of, of why that song came to be. Mm-hmm. But, uh, Which I'm looking forward to. The song has some strange undertones to it, naturally, yes. and then when you yeah. kind of put it over these moments, uh, it really shines. So I was lucky we had already sort of decided that that was Kurt's song by the time we got to me writing this episode. And I did think about, you know, how it made Harrison, how it spoke to Harrison's story as well. And like reaching this climax of like, are Harrison and Dexter going to go their separate ways? You know, is this not going to work out after all? Um, and Kurt being the one to to bring him back into the fold all seem to be pretty elegant. And I'm very excited yeah. for everyone to see kind of the deeper meaning to the mythology of it all when we get there. Yeah, it's uh, it's good. It's coming up. Yeah. Um, Harrison passing. Harrison ODing. Yeah. Woof. Revealing about his father. ODing. Scary. It's like every parent's nightmare. Definitely. Uh, but there's a ton of like truth to that situation. You know, we had done, and Clyde had brought this up too. I think like research into synthetic opioids and the fentanyl um, situation and just the fact that it is Russian roulette, you know, that 100 pills could be safe and the 101 is going to make you OD, you know. So obviously that's a dramatic moment and something we exploited for the story, but it's also like people should know and people should be careful. And we were being honest about that situation that's out there in the world. Yeah, and it was it was uh, sort of Logan's time to shine too, uh, Alano, in this episode. When uh, he saves he saves Harrison's life with a Narcan, and yeah. then uh, immediately Harrison <laughs> inadvertently looks to poor Scott, yeah. who gave him who gave him the drugs, and we get to see <laughs> Logan. We see like a different side to Logan, um, both yeah. in this scene and then uh, in another one of my favorite scenes of the season when uh, Logan when Dexter goes to the hospital, he just rushes in. He gets word that his son is OD'd. He's had a couple. of... The past two episodes, he had to run to the run to the school and run mm-hmm. to this. It's amazing what having kids will do to you. I can't imagine right. how many times <laughs> I've I've gone to the emergency room with my kids so many times. Have you? You have. Yeah, I think we've all talked yeah. about. Unfortunately, yes. But the joy of um, Dexter and Logan, uh, and Logan g- giving parenting tips. Mm-hmm. <laughs> No, he's coming from such a good place. Uh, you know, yeah. you know that Logan cares, and you really feel that in the OD scene, and you feel his relief yeah. of, of Harrison being okay, and the other kids calling him coach and and looking to him as a father figure, even in this like moment of crisis when he could be an authoritarian, um, and he does turn into one. You know, so him Logan sort of feeling like he knows what it's like, and then seeing Dexter's true fear, what that feels like when your heart's being ripped out of your chest, when it's your kid in that hospital bed, you know, and Dexter comes, so Logan having these really good intentions, you know, and Dexter coming back at him with like, you have no idea what this is like. Like they're both sort of speaking the truth, you know, so you can empathize, I hope, with both characters. Um, But I also love Logan in the interrogation scene. I thought he was 
he he was scary and that was unexpected and cool, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because he cares about these kids. He does. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Kurt and Chloe. Again, okay. this was another one of the, the what how Chloe we knew we knew when we were breaking this that we wanted Chloe to sort of fight back and to be yeah. to to do something different, you know, because we already saw, as you said earlier, we already saw how Kurt set up, you know, we, what Kurt's ritual is. Right. And here's someone that's gonna sort of screw with it a little bit. Um Yeah. And so you yeah. laid, I remember uh, you laid the whole Chloe thing out on the day. <laughs> um, like how she's going to fight back and how she's going to use yeah. who she is. Yeah, well, look, I'm sensitive, you know, as like one of the higher level female writers in the room. Like we're doing a story about women um, being victimized. I mean, and there's a lot of reasons to do that story. It's it's true to life. It happens all the time. You know, this character has deep-seated motivations for doing things this way that we will uncover later in the season. So once we understand that, but, you know, we did see what he did once and it felt like, why see that again? Why see the pattern repeat itself? It like, then it just gets exploitive, you know? So actually having Chloe say, I'm going to fight back. I'm not going to do things the way he wants me to do them, even till the bitter end, knowing that she's going to die. You know, like that's what made her take her power back and take some control back. And even using her sexuality that way, I felt like was unexpected um, and like a kind of weird twisted thing to see um, as she was like seducing him so that he would come in so that she could attack him, you know? And when we reveal that she has this like shiv or whatever under the pillow, you start to understand, you know, this was not about giving this guy what he wants, which was not what he wanted. It was about luring him <laughs> yeah. into her trap, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it was, it was uh, interesting to watch Kurt's reaction to that, or Clancy portray Kurt's yeah. reaction. Uh, again, unexpected and leads to like a bit of a mystery of why, you know, this isn't like Robert Hansen, who sort of kind of based this on a little bit, that Alaskan serial right. killer. Um uh, yeah, it was uh, Chloe's decision to not go along and fight all the way to the bitter bitter end uh, was mm-hmm. was brilliant. I love I love that final just rushing at him because yeah. she knows this is the only way. Like it's yeah. brave and strong. And then watching Kurt's damage as he's banging his head and he ruined everything. Yeah, that <laughs> was scary. one of the twist more twisted moments from him. You know, I loved how he yeah. uh, portrayed that. Like, I one of those surprising moments again of like, oh, this is even better than it was on the page. It's just like uh, seeing how that disrupted his whole pattern and like what that means. Yeah, so great. Um, and then you get to write Dexter on on the hunt twice in one episode. Yes. Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, no, it was so cool to get to do, as a huge fan of Dexter throughout the original run, like, to the fact yeah. that I got to write a Dexter kill was pretty fucking cool. Dream come true, for sure. So I think what made it more special to do as his second kill in this, you know, in this limited series is that it was motivated by vengeance. It was motivated yeah. as Deb calls him out on, you know, this isn't just about the code or just, or making a rational decision to kill because Dexter's yeah. always very rational, but making an emotional decision to kill and that yeah. being what pushed him over the edge after so long of being in control, losing that control because of his relationship and his love for his son, you know, was an interesting twist on a traditional Dexter Kell. Yeah, and it made it messy. It was like, he yeah. can't fix his son, so I'm going to fix this, which 
Yeah. I feel like every relationship has that moment. <laughs> where, Absolutely. Where you're, you, I can't fix this, so I'm going to fuck something else up in my life, <laughs> basically. Yeah, what he should have done is gone and talked to Harrison and kept Harrison yep. from ever taking that pill again by, you know, connecting with him and understanding where he was coming from. And instead, he decided to rationalize it by going to the source of the pills and making sure that went away, you know? Um, yeah. But it, it was really cool. I loved how you yeah, guys Yeah, and he went against all of his all of his code in a lot of ways, like even knowing mm-hmm. that the cops are going to be coming after um, uh, Jasper. You yeah. Know, hearing hearing in the station, they're going to come, you know, they got to talk to Moose Creek. It's going to, they probably won't even happen until tomorrow. So we felt like he yeah. had just enough time, but it wasn't the normal controlled prepare. I mean, he even had to like stop himself when he broke, when he broke into the house in that, in that bathroom and just be like, slow down, work yeah. the code, make it work, you know? Um, uh, and also another favorite moment just before that was uh, the hug with Esther. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know. That did work well. I was glad. You know, you never know how it's going to go, the choreography. But uh, it's fun to see Dexter want to kill. I think the audience is, is yearning for it, you know, and we earned it, hopefully, in this episode with the motivation. But as soon as he got that, like, twinkle in his eye, you know, you're excited to see what he's going to do next. And it's yeah. sick and enjoyable for an audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, uh, the joy of watching Dexter kill in a different way, and and his is uh, we added that little voiceover later on. Um, I yeah. don't know if you noticed that, but like the thing about uh, you know parenting is learning to is 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 learning. You can't always do the things you want to do, and you have to make yeah. some sacrifices. And his sacrifices yeah, are great. like jamming ketamine. <laughs> Right, <laughs> fentanyl of up somebody's nose. Yeah. Well, because he doesn't get his own personal satisfaction of chopping the body up and doing his whole ritual. So he and Kurt are sort of both being stymied in the same yep. way of not getting to yep. complete, you know, the thing that they want. So <laughs> as much as they're different, maybe they're a little bit the same too. Yeah, yeah, no, it was, it was uh, well constructed the way that you put this all together. Um, and then finally, you know, we, we're, it looks like Harrison's running away again. He's going back to his. In the same way that Dexter's like, I got to do something. I'm going to kill somebody. He's returning yeah. to his habits. Harrison's running away again, and he runs into Kurt. And, he, and uh, you want to talk about writing that scene about um, uh, well, sort of what I think is like so dark and weird about it is that we've just seen Kurt do these horrible things, you know, and then Kurt yeah. kind of sits down next to Harrison, and he was so warm and uh, understanding in a way that Dexter kind of couldn't muster. Uh, so that dichotomy of seeing him be both those things, like within the span of ten minutes, I think that's what what makes it so cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that um, that bit of um, uh, that bit of uh, advice that he gives that uh, that was Kirk your advice, Scott. That was the advice. That, that's that's yeah. That's what I. Uh, that's my when people when people say you know you've been married for like twenty six years. How did it happen? I'm like, this is one thing that I learned that I do. So it's it's nice that it's coming from a serial killer's mouth now instead of just me. Um, but <laughs> no, it's true. It does. Yeah. You're super pissed at somebody. Do something nice. It's gonna it'll it'll change your heart a little bit. Well, I'll try to know. take that. And advice. then and maybe you won't. You know, do other horrible things. Um, so it, you know, another thing about this episode is like it's a it's a freaking roller coaster ride. You have uh, you know Dexter yeah. going after uh, Miles. Beating the crap out of him, just like a you know a parent on a soccer field or something, mm-hmm. leading to to uh, taking out Jasper and the excitement of like getting away from the cops. Uh, Dexter returning home, feeling sort of sated. Harrison coming in after his whole weird journey that he that he that he had this thing. Meanwhile, yeah. you've got 
the thing we haven't talked about at all okay. is Angela. Angela yeah. and Molly. Mm-hmm. Uh, going to New York. Yeah. It, it's going to it's New York. fun to see Molly come to life and, you know, be that comic relief that we need desperately in such a dark show. But yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think she's fantastic. And I, I loved seeing them sort of go on this journey together and Angel Batista being the big surprise. Batista? Yes, yeah. I know. We it were was, all it excited was, to be able to do that. God, it was such, it was such a fun day. Like, um, so we were shooting at some hospital. Uh, no, not, no, not a hospital. We were shooting at like a, a hotel just outside yeah. of Boston. And um, we, the, the amount of secretive work that we had to do to get Batista onto, to get, you know, David Zayas onto set because wow. people know it's Dexter and we don't want anybody to know that, you know, this is like our, our one whole card because we wanted to keep, um, you know, Lithgow a secret, but that got leaked because somebody saw him arrived on set and whatever. Oh, um, interesting. There were people on a rooftop across the way that were trying to get shots inside of the place that we were at. Um, so we had to like, cover him up and use umbrellas and bring him inside and then do the scene and cover the windows. And Wow. Uh, and luckily I felt like uh, we did it. We kept it a secret. People didn't, people didn't know. And, and it was just so much, it was so fun to see, to have that sort of energy back on set. The, you know, yeah. the way that he sort of hits on Angela yeah, <laughs> during the conversation, like he's still and what did Batista. it feel like to to see him again after so long, Scott, working together? Uh, it was, yeah, it was wonderful. It was great. I mean, yeah, it was. Uh, it was just like old, just like home, you know, in in a lot of ways. Uh, yeah, it's cool to to bring him back and know that it, for me at least, he poses a threat to Dexter. Now, yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah. in in telling Angela that information and everything, like. It, it really turns the tables on someone who used to be an ally to now potentially unraveling Could Dexter's whole situation. I love the end of the episode when that paid off. I was like, oh, this is awesome. Well, because <laughs> at the top of the episode, you you this is, again, how you just created such a beautiful script, that at the top wow. of the episode, you have Dexter just arguing with his sister that I just want, I just want to be known. I want to let, right. I, you know... <laughs> This is all yeah. I want. I just want my son to know. I want to, if I tell him the truth about me, then he's going to be fine, and I'll be fine, and it's going to be great. And at mm -hmm. the end of the episode, Dexter is known. Literally, yeah. Dexter Morgan comes rolling off of this thing. Yeah. Um, and I think it was a ballsy choice of us as a room, you know, to just, like, let that roll out in episode five. You know, like, he's here he is living under an alias, you know, and you would think, like, are they ever going to blow that up and now we get to do that. It's it's always a pleasure to write in episode five. That's that's the magic number because you have sort of <laughs> introduced the audience to the world enough, you know, and the characters yeah. and everybody's sort of got their footing and we know what people want and who they are and their relationships with each other. And now you can sort of start to mix it all up and put people in situations that you haven't seen before. So I think it's it was a pleasure to get this assignment. <laughs> yeah, no, I remember like even even when we turned in this outline to um to Showtime, like they they loved it, first of all. They thought it was just brilliant writing all around and great storytelling, oh. all of that. And then, but their question was, they were like, is it too soon? Are we giving right. up too much stuff? And we're like, Well, don't worry, we'll get we we'll got get you this. there. <laughs> and did you notice the final song at the end? Normally we have like a little Dexter song, and over the credits, um, we have a new we we put in uh uh Princess goes to the Butterfly Museum, playing. Oh. So it's Michael C. Hall. That's who yeah. you're hearing sing in his in his band singing the song Ketamine. Oh my um, god! The song. What did he yeah, think it was so of perfect. that? Oh, he was. It, yeah, he was very was he happy. It? Yeah, 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 way into it. But uh, it just felt like 
this is the episode to like lay that in there. It's a cool little Easter egg. Most people won't even realize it. But uh That's awesome. Yeah, it's a it's a, you know, when you it was funny when when Michael was um when we were pitching the season to him and he was reading scripts and all of that, he was also writing a record for Princess Goes to the Butterfly Museum. Yeah. And uh, he said it was weird because so much of the songs that he was that he's writing are dealing with Dexter stuff. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Well, hey man, thank you so much for uh, for for coming on the podcast. Um, gonna have you back. My pleasure. You wrote, I miss seeing your face on Zoom. So this is I know similar. it's such a <laughs> such a weird way of season on Zoom. So <laughs> yeah, so weird. So weird. Yeah, it's gonna, it's I'm gonna so be all excited right. for people to see where this season goes. You know, I think in a lot of ways it's familiar, and uh, we're reintroducing people to this world for the first couple of episodes. But it goes places that the original never did. You know, and shit gets weird, and I'm so excited for people to keep watching. Me too. Me too. Joining me now are two folks who are key in helping set the tone in each episode of Dexter New Blood. The show's music supervisor, Michael Hill, and composer, Pat Irwin. Pat Irwin, composer, B-52s, all sorts of... Hello there. Yeah, I am... That's um, Pat Irwin. <laughs> my name's Pat Irwin. I'm telling you, writing music for Dexter's a real ride. Thrilled to be a part of it. You've worked with Clyde Phillips in the past a lot. And so when Clyde said, yeah, I'm thinking I'm going to try to bring Pat Irwin on, I was like, what? And my daughter also, like, what? You have a large swath of a fan base there, Pat Irwin, and Clyde Phillips being one of them. It's nice to have that working relationship. It makes it, it, makes it easy to collaborate, which it's all about. Our other person, our music supervisor, Michael Hill. Hello, Michael Hill. Howdy. When my daughter, when the two of us read Trouble Boys, <laughs> the replacements thing, and suddenly we realized that you're all over that thing, that was pretty cool. You've been, you've been doing this supervising music and otherwise for a long time, huh? That's right, yeah. About 15 years of this, and actually 15 years of surviving the record business. And I will mention, before that, I will mention that the first project I ever worked on as a music supervisor was a film that is lost to the ages. It was originally called Till Christmas, like a Christmas rom-com type movie. I came on to supervise it, to learn how to do this job, and suggested that Pat Irwin be our composer. That was in 1998, 97, 98. We were, both were pretty new to this side of the world, but I think we both saw the proverbial writing on the wall that, hey, this is something to really, this is a cool avenue to go down. And we went down there together. You want to give like a quick uh, recap of what a music supervisor does for a TV show and movies and all that? Sure. It's, uh, in the best of times, it's really being a part of the creative team to figure out what pieces of music beyond a, compos a composed piece of music are going to be in the show. For example, at the start of Dexter, we have him running through the woods of New Blood and Iggy Pops the Passengers playing, and it's there in this montage way to kind of make things fun, set a certain tone, slyly mention the passenger. <laughs> and not long into the show, we have another song, Dan Auerbach, King of a One-Horse Town, which kind of sneaks in almost as if it's score, but then both lyrically and musically kind of sets a mood, like Dexter is this easygoing guy named Jim Lindsay living in this little small town. So my job can help create that mood with existing pieces of music. And on the less exciting uh, tip, I have to make sure that all of it is able to be licensed, that we can afford it, and that it's legally ours to use. So. And knowing what Clyde and yourself and Marcos, what everybody is thinking. 
and yeah. what we'd like to hear. Very rarely will we put a song into the script, but we'll have these ideas. And luckily, you're there to say, no, Rolling Stones is never, I'm sorry. <laughs> Let's talk about your background uh, and sort of like your journey to Dexter. Yeah, had you guys watched the original series at all? Were you sort of aware of it? I was both a fan of Dexter and having worked with Clyde, became very much a fan of his whole sensibility. And I think both Pat and I learned over the years on Nurse Jackie and then on Feed the Beast, the way he thinks and conceives things and then brings on a team that presumably mostly like-minded people to yeah. realize that vision. Yeah, it's tough because it, like, you know, you've got uh, Marcos who comes from music videos, so he knows music a lot. And Clyde loves deep dives. And like, if he's not reading some sort of music biography, I don't know what he's reading. A lot of music coming around the corner on this show, it seems like. It's a big change, I would say, even from this season that we were trying to get more, what's the word? It's not score. Is it score? What is it? Help me out here. Source music or people call it diegetic music if they want to be fancy. But I think the old Dexter just did such a lovely job in a very different climate of combo of score and music that made you never forget that you were in Miami. It was very warm and very different. And I think here, having the, the songs help create a different mood. It's a different piece. It's a different work. We're in a completely different world. And Dexter himself is a kind of a different guy. So it's fun to change it up and not repeat those things. And I will hand this over to Pat to say that he had a daunting job, which he succeeded in creating something new while nodding to what has happened already. Yeah, let's get to Pat. Pat, so coming from the band, the B-52s, touring in front of hundreds of thousands of people. Let's talk about transition from being in a rock band to a composer. Can you talk about that journey for a second? Well, I was very, very fortunate to have the opportunity to be a part of the B-52s. And when I started playing with the band, I was a fan, and I had already done some soundtracks before, before that time. Rocco's Modern Life, Pepper Ann, maybe SpongeBob. I had, I had done some, some work prior and some independent films. So in a way, it really wasn't a transition. I'm really lucky to have done both. You know, we've intersected many, many times over the years uh, as fans and friends. Uh, Michael as a writer, I as a performer. You know, I play in a small club in, in, in Hoboken called Maxwell's that was a tremendous scene, you know, really a vivid indie scene. But always at the same time, I was, you know, in, in the world of, of New York performance, there was filmmakers who are using visuals and music, and it just all seemed to intersect. I don't know, it was all part of the entertainment pie. Pat, let's talk about the legacy of the late, great Daniel Licht, the original Dexter composer, the importance of being able to incorporate some of those themes. You just stepped right into it. Like there was no, uh, or anything. Um, it's almost like you paid homage to it without copying it at all, you know? The themes that Daniel wrote are very recognizable and beautifully recorded and arranged with the combination of different instruments that you described, you know, always, always exciting and always identifiable. I kind of took the essence of that and pared it down to the barest possible options. Yeah. If there's, you know, just a couple notes that I can use that will evoke it, the aforementioned guitar feedback and an old synthesizer, which has some noise and hum and an old Moog, and I would make some old-fashioned loops that kind of churn away underneath it. I think it helps that I love 
that music, those themes that were used in the original show, really A plus writing. Um, so evoking those themes is challenging and fun. And I, I don't want to well, copy yeah. it, right. but I want to get to it right away. We're not in Miami anymore. You know, right. We're, we're, we're somewhere else. You know, we talked about using a very ambient sound, which I think is challenging because that original score is so melodic in some in beautiful ways. It's just a challenge that I'm, I, listen, this, Dexter has a lot of fans. <laughs> and I think one of the reasons why it has a lot of fans, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a really compelling character, but the music is also part of that. And I'm nervous about alienating the fans. You know, I don't want them to, to be put off by this sound that we've got going. So I like bringing back pieces, shards, yeah, uh, if you will. shards. That's a great uh, word for uh, it. It's almost like a memory at times. Like yeah. as Dexter, as Dexter emerges from Jim Lindsay, because he's been Jim Lindsay right. for ten years, uh, and right. you've been very spare yeah. and careful through episode five, not revealing him that often. And when you in episode one in the pilot, when he's finally in the kill room, and the theme interpreted by you, Pat, begins to reveal itself, the blood theme. It was such a, a thrill, particularly during a pandemic, to finally be in a room with a whole bunch of people. At the premiere. All of the yeah. fans. And when that came on, just people went bananas. And I think it was a tribute to what you were able to do musically. It was so seamless that everyone fell into it. It was perfect and, and, and quite a tribute, I think, to how well the score turned out, that everyone just flowed right back into this thing. In the that had to feel possible. good. Come on. Even you smiled, huh, Pat? Yeah. <laughs> yeah he I, did. I was sitting next to him. <laughs> I, I did, as a matter of fact. But listen, I mean, you know, both you, I mean, you, Scott in particular, there are things that you've, direction that you've given. I don't take it lightly. Oh, I know. Yeah. You say a little something. I want to stick with that. Same with Clyde, same with Marcos, Michael C. Hall. You know the show, you know the characters, you know what, you, what you're going for. And what's interesting sometimes about score is that sometimes it's just something and it takes a little bit extra to get the right thing. Yeah. You, you know, you in particular, Scott, you have this sort of feeling about the old tone, some of the old themes. You're the keeper of that, you know, it's, it's, it's fun. No, it's the way the process sort of works is we'll sit down, Zoom or whatever. We'll be Zooming along with a clear view, watching the episode. Editors will put in, when they put together the editor and the director, they put in their version. They'll put in the sounds-like sort of stuff, especially at the beginning. But as the show goes along and we have more and more music cues, we're able to put more and more of your pads and your cues. And we'll talk about the cue. We'll talk about the intention of what we really want to happen here. And you're always amazing, Pat, in, in the way that you're able to take our, like the intention of this should be that blah, 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 whatever. You sit there, we see your head go down for a second and you look up and then we say, no, you're on mute. And then you unmute yourself. <laughs> this is what we all do. This is the new world. <laughs> and then you, you thoughtfully go ask questions about, you know, try to narrow that thing in. And then it's always so exciting when we get to do the music review. Like I did one, we did one today for seven, episode seven. It's so exciting to be like, he did it. He did it, you know? And then you, and you're also like amazing in the way that you'll do it perfect. And then we'll look at it and it's like, uh, we're missing this one extra thing. And then you just... You know, we'll give a little note and it's like, it's like a miracle. 
it's amazing how you're able to like, take it, interpret it, and, and create these feelings and connect it with picture and with people and with conversations and not overwhelm it and not, you know, Mickey Mouse it or whatever. I mean, that makes me really happy. At the risk of blowing my cover, I'm not coasting. You know, I'm, 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 I'm not <laughs> 100% are. sure that I'm getting this right. And I think that's a testimony to the complexity of the character. This character is complicated. I want to be someone who's contributing in a way, you know, I don't think I ever go into it thinking, oh, I know exactly what this needs. I've got these notes in front of me. I've got to make some changes. There's a couple, there's one in one moment where I'm, I, I'm just going to have to think on it a little bit just to get it exactly <laughs> For the record, right. it was like 95% you were on point amazing. And that's how it mostly is. Every, you know, that's how it is almost every time. Yeah, it's yeah. That was, that was a pretty uh, great stack of notes. I have to say, I appreciate that. That's cool. I mean, you know, that's that's what I want to hear. I want to get it right. You know, I want to be yeah. there. I want to be in the snow and get it right yeah. with everybody. Yeah. When you compose it, do you like read the script and think about it, and then do it to picture? Do you? How do you, how do you, I mean, right now, to sort of paint a picture to the, the people that can't see you, you are, it looks like you're in your studio. There's music instruments all around you and microphones and uh, all of that. Uh, you want to talk about that process of... Uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I did get the scripts and I had a general idea. I knew they were in upstate New York and I knew it was going to be cold. I knew that Dexter... It was, he wasn't the same person. And really, you know, Michael and I have been tasked with putting this together where it's not the old Dexter, it's a new version, yet he's not completely changed. You know, we have to allude to it, acknowledge to it. I look at the scripts, but it was the images that finally hit, you know, this stark, cold place. In a way, it's very solitary and austere. You know, I started recording using old synthesizers along with some new ones, I, a funky old guitar where I used some feedback. Luckily, I got some really uh, encouraging comments about using some of those sort of old guitar sounds, not in a traditional way. It's not like guitar picking. It's an atmosphere. And he uses a lot of different countries' instruments, like strange, odd string things with that are made from bone because Clyde and I would go to a studio back in on the old show he would excitedly go got this brand new whatever you know zitar I don't know <laughs> and he was always he was always branching into that because that was the feel of Miami as you were saying Michael Hill that is you know it's it's a bit more the world you know it's Cuba it's Latin it's America but Iron Lake is not that place <laughs> no I mean we it's very austere yet the, you know there's still some of the the tone of, of the old show and I just, when it gets to those parts where it's kind of whimsical or winking in amongst all this darkness, I tend to lean towards just letting that wink all by itself. Yeah, I mean, we'll watch the episode together and talk through music cues and uh, diegetic stuff or song, pop songs we want or score. You having, Pat, thinking that's very important for, for the town of Iron Lake, that it's not Dexter alone in a cabin, there's something a bit more light. And so that sort of Iron Lake theme, you know, dun, 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 that you created, uh, it took me a second. I was like, oh, oh no, that's exactly right. Because that goes to character, right? Yeah, I mean, this idyllic place, it's probably not all that idyllic. 
it was just being able to set the tone for this place. Very austere. And at the same time, there's kind of an odd icing on that cake. And that particular cue, which is when Dexter's walking out of the bakery and on his way to Fred's Fish and Game with some pastries for his boss, not long after that, you have the intimations of, is there somebody following Dexter, which we're going to learn who that actually is. Edward Olson, the big financier, comes by in his helicopter, and there's a bit of ominous stuff. So it, it's it's so nice, and it's such a great misdirect early on to just have this kind of happy-go-lucky theme. And I feel, in a way, that's the hardest thing to do, to go counter to what you know is coming. That whole sequence is very, very natural. It puts you a bit more at ease to be shocked when... <laughs> The other stuff starts happening. Yeah, I mean, I just didn't want to draw too much attention to itself. You know, there's kind of a solitary feeling to writing music for film and t- TV. Sure, it's a collaboration. It's a really important collaboration. But often, you know, you find yourself by yourself. And I just, for some reason, didn't want the music to draw too much attention to itself. Let's not overstate this, you know, and so... The Iron Lake theme, you know, that was a moment where, you know, I didn't want to make it too whimsical and charming with glockenspiels and whatnot. It it just sort of fit into the tone that could possibly come from that place, I thought. Yeah, no, it's it's great. It's fantastic. I could use more cowbell, but other than that, it's, you know, but what couldn't? Um, Going back to Michael Hill, not Hall, uh, you started your career in the music industry as an A&R rep, right? Is that? That's correct. Yes, that was in, uh, to date myself completely here in 1983. I started out every Friday, I get the new vinyl. By the time I left Warner Brothers, we were not just getting CDs, but we were all being threatened by Napster, which is why I saw the writing on the wall. You know, digital music was coming. And so I did see a, a pretty vast change in the world where music was something that you really did have to seek out in a very careful way, which was my job, just to travel around, to go out to clubs all the time. And honestly, I think that the job that I do today as a music supervisor, while every piece of music is seemingly at our disposal, to find the right piece of music, it's still that same instinct of I'm going on a search. And can we talk about episode two? Oh, yeah, yeah. We're, 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 this is for episode five. So anything one through five, if there's specific things you're super proud of or whatever, let's talk. Okay, let's get well, into I, it. Wanna, I, I certainly want us to talk about episode five in that great party. But in episode two, we had to switch out a song when the runaway is trapped and she doesn't realize she's trapped and she thinks she's just got this incredible benefactor giving her chocolate and champagne. And we had a song, we loved it. And then we had some contractual issues, which is what happens is the unfun part of my job. And I really spent like two or three days like, what the F am I going to do? <laughs> well, it's true because uh, you helped us fall in love with that song so much. Yeah. <laughs> you know, And it felt, at a certain point, you just feel like, this is perfect. Nothing else could yeah. do it. And then suddenly it's like, nope, you can't use it. And we're just all like, all right. No, it's like your engagement. Your <laughs> engagement right. is off. You're not getting she married. She just got on the bus with Dustin Hoffman. So as I was thinking, I just began to think more and more, like we we had the idea of an old song, a 60s song. We wanted the theme of the good life. We tried a bunch of things that kind of worked, but nothing just set everybody on fire the way the original one had. Then I just started thinking about tempo. And, you know, and out of the blue, honestly, I was like, shoot, what's that Beck song I love? Black Tambourine. And uh, 
it's one I always kept close because it's got that that wonderful, almost Bo Diddley B, which yeah. lends itself to cutting picture. And that really is one of the reasons I felt this could actually work. We put it in there and immediately everyone was like, yes, we found it. We were all super excited. Yeah, we all goosebumped. And And we had about three days before the mix. So <laughs> it's also that sometimes standing on the precipice and having to make something, it's it can be a great motivator as well as a great source of you know panic and distress. But in, in 105, I think we had a lot of fun looking at that party. And I have to say, big props to David Leonard and, and Jacob, Wax or our uh, AE, we call them Wax. They took a bunch of songs that I contributed songs. Let's talk about that just for a second. Like mm-hmm. you... You give everybody like a, like, you know, a party's coming up. And so you're like, here's, you give like a, you know, like a mixtape basically. Yeah. Of a bunch of songs that could work. Yeah. Okay, and okay. Um, you guys had suggested things too. And uh, for the audience, you know, everybody sort of throws in their ideas. And I will, if you say, hey, you know, we have to have that Kanye song. I'd say, well, <laughs> I may not actually get to that one clear for you. And then we give it to our editor, our picture editor, and David just started playing around. And I have to say that this particular sequence, we use a lot of different kinds of songs. We start with this band called Clubhouse, who are a very much an indie band, and it was something that Marcos was into. It's just Showtime had asked us to do something that kind of gets the starty popping, but, but we weren't quite there yet because Harrison had just walked in the door. And then Clyde had asked me to find some really kind of of of-the-minute, high school kid-worthy, like hip-hop type music that would work. And so we got uh, Jack Harlow's What's Poppin', which it's a thing of the moment that those kids would relate to. And it's also, that's when he starts taking drugs too, so that... Correct. ...feeds into that. It feels like you're almost, like you're drinking cough syrup. Don't do that, kids at home. But it has that kind of feel... To it, yeah. Yes, and it's yeah, it really worked. And then the Thai tag song, I feel where that works, it's now it's just a moment almost of repose in the party where things for everyone except Harrison are chilling out just a little bit. And to me, that song really makes me think of the 80s because yeah. I'm an old guy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but to the, that's a compliment to the artist, I think, because yeah. it has that feeling where Susie, I think yeah, someone might. Yeah. Yeah, that's Susie and the Banshees vibe. And to me, that's gold. You know, when you find indie artists who remind you of something that might be bigger and more famous, you're you're keeping everybody in the moment. You're also not paying as much. And you're also, (laughs) you know, dealing with a great young artist. But then when when Harrison's really in the thrall of the drugs, we have two songs. We have Travis Scott's Goosebumps, which we really kind of morphed into this very trippy little business. And this song by a, a DJ named Afrojack, who has a ton of stuff if you go on Spotify. He's, he mixes everybody's songs. But this was a song of his own called Boom Boom Pow. And just as Harrison is realizing I'm really out of it, I felt that David placed the song, sound design-wise, suddenly we're in the middle of Harrison's head. And it was a thrill just to see what, those guys did with the music that we gave them. That's the magic of everybody putting their heads together as a team. And out of that comes this really cool scene where music is at the heart of it. It's amazing how much you, Pat, and you, Michael, have to work hand-in-hand with the editors. And Jordan. Jordan Ross, our music editor. He's a musician and a drummer by trade. One of the reasons I love working with Jordan is he always knows where to cut 
five is probably one of our more music than most as far as like songs, pop songs or whatever. Let's talk about some of the music in episode five. Probably one of the more important scores of the season. It's one of the few songs that we actually had in the script back when we were breaking the show. And it is Runaway by Del Shannon. When we were just thinking about character and who Kurt is and what his ritual is and what this all means, Runaway just sort of appeared. It felt like the right thing. Getting Runaway. I, I remember it was quite a journey, Michael Hill. <laughs> uh, uh, there, there was a point where it, it was sort of like, I don't know, we have to think about a different song. I'm not sure. Because there's also the scare of, like, what's the process? I guess that's what I want to get into. Because it's one thing to be like, it's a great song that's happening in a bar. It's Blondie in episode one and Dexter's line dancing. This is tied to a big bad. This is tied to evil deeds. You know, it can control the flow of a song for a while. When I think about, like, Quentin Tarantino, what he has done to uh, Caught in the Middle with You, right? Is that the ear slicing? Uh, stuck in the Middle with You, yes. Like, he claimed it. Yes, no one can unsee that. <laughs> And that was, I mean, that was really memorable because he was among the first in certainly in the world that I come from to do that, that counterintuitive use of a music cue, this really cool M.O.R. pop song while this horrific thing was happening. And I think people subsequently have either used it really, really well or done the idea to death. So one has to be quite careful when you do that. With Runaway, the good news was this happened well before you guys even started shooting, there was a whole team involved. Showtime's music legal, the clearance person. The good news for the nerdy bunch of people who really want to know what goes on behind the scenes, the publishing for Runaway and the master recording of Runaway are owned by the same company. So that actually, which made it a little easier to deal with. And I think that, that Runaway was really a thematic just sort of glue for the season, made it more attractive to like, are you guys willing to let us do this? So I think the fact that it wasn't just, hey, we want to use it in one scene that is a little kind of nasty, but rather we're going to build this through the entire season. And bonus, it's in the promos. I mean, it was, that song was used so well. So I, I know someone could complain and say, no, I don't want to do this, but it was a wonderful feature for that song. And much like you say, like Stuck in the Middle with You, we do remember it from Reservoir Dogs, but we just remember the song and we want to play the song. So it's a win-win for the company, for the estate of uh, Del Shannon. And it also gave us a clue with one of our characters, Kurt, of songs that we might feel other songs that work for this guy. When I first read that, I was like, holy, like, are we really going to do this? Is this madness? Because it can really blow up in your face, but it didn't. We were both very lucky, and I think it's, it's a tribute to the power of Dexter, you know, that people want to be involved with the show. Also, that it was presented and written in such a way that none of this was gratuitous. It all made sense. That was a lucky break. I'm particularly impressed, I got to say, with the way it's used in, is it 103 when we first... Yeah, see the the see uh, runaway being chased. It's just that blows my mind. That particular scene is one of my most favorites. And just the song works perfectly the way it starts. The coldness of what's going on. It's the, really the needle cool. dropping on the record. The little forty-five. You can go south so fast with those kind of ideas. <laughs> <laughs> and and this worked. My only question was if I had more time. It's like. Can we vis effects a record label more distinctly, which is always the thing that I nerd out on. Like, 
no, that's that's not the what the label looked like. I have that forty five here at my house. Yeah, yeah, I know it's 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 pretty great. I'm trying to remember, are there any other like key songs we should talk about, like that uh, that, that you feel? You, I got to say, watching it on the big screen, I thought haunted. The Love and Rocket song really worked well. It was really, it was just at the cusp, I thought, of up to that point, the Iggy song, the Auerbach song, everything was more or less sort of cheerful. And then when we get to Love and Rockets, we're in between, because that song is kind of cool and has a wonderful syncopation to it, which helped in terms of the cunning of that scene. But it's also pushing us, you know, we're getting a little farther into the dark side. To me, that was a wonderful little turning point in the story. I think, you know, again, in in 103, the use of um, the Everly Brothers was just so beautiful and creepy at the same time. That was yet another one where I I was delighted that everyone was on board with doing it. And again, it was the power of Dexter. So thank you, Dexter. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, there's lots of little things in there, too, that I always... We throw in some nice indie songs and our jukeboxes, I can tell everybody, are full of old uh, R&B and rock numbers. And if you go onto Spotify and look up a company called The Numero Group, they salvage a lot of regional artists from yesteryear, you know, from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. A lot of great old soul music, stuff that kind of went by the wayside and that I find is very evocative if you're using it in a textural way. So I think for a listener, if you want to kind of hear that stuff, you can find that music. We also, I know there's a Dexter playlist that's official that Showtime does. So I always love it when a show has like a Spotify playlist. Yeah, and it's good to find the the official one because we're in an era where we really can tell everybody who the artists are, whereas there was a time when you really had to search to figure out who was in a show. For the music fans out there, both with Pat and Michael, are there things that they, that fans should keep their ears perked up that are going to happen for the rest of the season? Have you been laying, like for Pat, have you been laying clues down toward where we're going at all or things that people should be listening to, tones? Yeah, absolutely. Michael mentioned it in the uh, episode one. Harrison has sort of a, this very distinctive tonality, you know, that comes back as the show goes on. You know, it might be a little too subtle, but in episode seven and six, I think, I bring it back. Kurt, the bad guy, I mean, I'm just having so much fun with these three notes, B yeah. flat, minor, uh, <laughs> going, you know, just, and then going down a, a half step. You know, how much mileage can I get out of the, the least amount of stuff? <laughs> and so Kurt has this, this three note theme that's kind of gradually merging in odd ways with Dexter's notes as well. The keys are getting closer to one another. Now, it always feels like you are building the characters and we are following them along. These very emotional themes that you have created that are spare, but they are there. And they never get in the way of the scene, uh, but they inform the scene. Uh, They never get in the way of the acting. They're not trying to tell us things, but they are telling us things in in these sort of like beautiful, subtle ways. Big fan of you two. Mm -hmm. Look at me. Well... It also, with all these things, at the best of times, you end up becoming a team, whether with the picture and with the music, because you begin to know who everybody is, both behind the camera and also what's happening on screen. You have an idea of everyone's sensibilities. That's how you can really make things work, because you know what showrunners and EPs are responding to. You know what the editor's like. And of course, I always tell everyone involved in music, get to know your editors. Those are your first lines of defense and everything. And then... You know, when we all get together, I think we begin to all think as this kind of 
single organism. And when that works, it's terrific. Then you just feel sad when you get to the last one. Yeah, no, it's true. It's like a little family. Can I give a shout out to, um, since Pat won't say this himself, that Pat's current group for outside of his composing work is called SUS, which Scott has mentioned, S-U-S-S, and I just highly recommend go on your favorite streaming service and find it, particularly for if it's a nice chilly night out. It's just perfect. <laughs> I write to it now. Like I remember when Clyde was like, I want to bring Pat Irwin on. And I was like, the B-52s guy? And I, I, didn't, I, I couldn't wrap my head around that sound. You know how you sort of get, you get locked in on a sound. <laughs> and then uh, he forwarded me sus. And I was just like, oh. This is, I mean, it's wonderful. It's like Carpenter. It's amazing. It's great. It's great. And the PS to that is that one of his earliest bands, which I saw countless times in clubs from Maxwell's to Danceteria to Radio City Musical, was called <laughs> the Ray Beats. And the Ray Beats really did pioneer a sound. It's almost like surf rock meets Philip Glass. And Philip Glass produced one of the records. And it's a sound that has permeated a lot of what happens in composed music. And we brought Pat in for the third season of Bored to Death on HBO. And prior composer really was very much inspired by the Ray Beats. So it's like when we got Pat there, I think we were able to really bring into fruition a sound that had been kind of percolating for a very long time. So I urge you to listen to the Ray Beats stuff too. It's really cool and well ahead of its time. Yeah, super great. Our camera operators are in a band and they're in one of the, um, you can hear them in the background. That's right. The band is called Small Drag and they're in episode four when Dexter is hustling the the drug dealer in the bar. Super, super great. Cool, Cool folks, people behind the camera and then... We hear them in a bar, and, and they're the right music for that bar. It's 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 wild how you're able to sort of like hear a sound inside the diner, hear a sa- sound inside that dive bar, the truck stop, yeah. and you know where you are because of the songs that you have guided us yeah. into, Michael Hill. Hey, listen, thank you so much, Michael. Thank you so much, Pat, for coming on the Dexter Wrap Up with us. I've enjoyed and, every minute. Thanks. For having oh yeah, it's great. It was great. Yeah, thanks uh, for having us. This was fun. Thank you for uh, opening up our ears and eyes to all of the things that that go behind the scenes to make this show what it is. And that's a wrap for this week's episode. Listen every Tuesday and subscribe to the Dexter New Blood wrap-up wherever you get your podcasts. And watch Dexter New Blood Sundays only on Showtime. This official podcast of the Showtime original series Dexter New Blood is produced by Showtime in conjunction with Malka Media.